My guest today is a determined optimist, and he'd have to be. He's worked in corporate sustainability since the 70s, and even now, amid the wreckage of COVID-19, he's more optimistic than ever. Today, I'm speaking with John Elkington, whose new book, Green Swans, looks at the biggest challenges facing our world today and reframes them as opportunities for renewal and regeneration. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the future of sustainable business, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. Now, John founded his first environmental consulting company, Environmental Data Services, in 1978, followed by Sustainability, with a capital A, in 1987. He's widely touted with coming up with the term triple bottom line in 1994, but then two years ago, he recalled it. Just like a car with a dodgy airbag, he said the management concept wasn't working as it was designed, so he's pulled it off the shelf. He's a prolific writer with 19 books under his belt, and he's worked with companies all over the world, designing environmental policies and pushing them to ignore the status quo and innovate with an exponential mindset. I've been looking forward to this one for quite some time. I could have quizzed John for many more hours to dig into his long experience in the boardrooms of power, trying to decode his mastery of influence and the balancing act of trying to drive change in big organisations that have plenty of incentives to keep things just the way they are. I hope you get as much out of this one as I did. You can find all the show notes on my website at johntreadgold.com. And to help more people find the show, please do leave a review on iTunes. All right, let's do it. This is my conversation with John Elkington. Here we go. John Elkington, thank you for coming on the show. A pleasure. Now, Green Swans is the title of your latest book. So can you tell us when did the this metaphor of the, the green swan first come to you to, to represent this, this optimistic vision of the future? Well, anyone who knows the history of the black swan, uh, which uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb uh, put as the title of his book back in 2007, will remember that what he meant by a black swan was something that came out of the blue. So it was a very big surprise. People didn't see it coming. It had secondly a, a huge impact on... on um, people or, or, or the world. And then thirdly, afterwards, we tended to look back at what had just happened to us and actually not understand it terribly well. So we set ourselves up again for failure. That was the black swan. Uh, and incidentally, Taleb has said that he doesn't consider COVID-19 uh, a black swan because uh, people did see it coming. Um, they even set up units to uh, counter such uh, challenges. Uh, and in some cases, like the United States, they actually shut them down. Um, so not a black swan. And the green swan idea was if black swans mainly take us places we don't want to go, so they're at least to start with sort of uh, negative exponentials, what would it be like if we had sort of positive exponentials? What would those look like? Where in the world could we already see those uh, happening? Um, and, and the simple answer is that they do exist, but they're different. The black swans tend to happen accidentally because we're not paying attention, because we don't don't think about unintended consequences of some of the things that we're doing, whereas the green swans have to be worked on and invested in over quite extended periods of time. That's right. And if COVID-19 isn't 
a black swan, it's certainly opportunity for green swans to take flight. So excellent timing in that. So can you, what, what was the timing for the book and sort of what led you to having it published last year? It was actually published this year uh, in April. The writing finished um, at the end of uh, December uh, 2019. And people have been saying uh, routinely in, in, in interviews and reviews around the world that it's spectacularly timely. And in a way, that was just good luck. I mean, you know, you can't, you can't um, guarantee good timing. But the nature of the pandemic is uh, very aligned with the sorts of challenges that I'm talking about uh, in the book. They tend to be very um, complex, very hard-hitting, but very often on exponential uh, trajectories, so that in the early days, it's very hard to see them coming. And we've just seen one government after another, except perhaps places like New Zealand, uh, struggle uh, to see what was coming, because these things, uh, to start with, with at least um, look less important than they uh, become. It didn't talk that much about uh, pandemics. I mean, they're in there. Um, but in a way, I think the pandemic is a dry run for some of the other big um, challenges that we now face, the climate emergency, the biodiversity emergency. In fact, some people now talk about a planetary uh, emergency. And the question is whether we use it in, 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 in that way uh, to, to learn how to deal with these bigger challenges or the, whether we just shut down our imaginations and go back to sleep. In that way, then, you know, you, you've obviously got a lot of experience in this. This book is a culmination of that experience and, and the issues that you see in the world. But do you think there is a difference in this moment, in this year or in the last few years of, of being a moment of change? You know, you talked about a punctuated equilibrium, but I sometimes wonder if this puts too much emphasis on, on the present and whether change is constant and it's sort of a human bias to think that now is a time of great importance. It's tempting to say uh, this moment is unique. It's not. Um, but on the other hand, uh, the point about punctuated equilibrium, you know, evolutionary biologists talk about systems that go along in a fairly stable way for quite a long period of time. And then suddenly uh, change happens. And there's a guy in Silicon Valley called Tim O'Reilly who talks about, and this is again derivative of uh, Ernest Hemingway's uh, writing, he talks about a gradually then suddenly world, uh, uh, you know, an era where things go along pretty um, reliably. Uh, for quite some time. And then suddenly change goes in a completely different gear. Now, I think that is what we're seeing now. I think there are all sorts of reasons why we're seeing it. In fact, in the book, which, as I say, was uh, completed before the pandemic hit, the first diagram shows or illustrates what I call the U-band. Uh, and what I've been saying for about two, two and a half years is that the world was, and now is, uh, headed into a U-band of historic uh, proportions, and there are many different factors at work. Uh, the COVID uh, crisis has come in on top of these. So there are, there are sort of geopolitical trends, there are macroeconomic trends, there are social trends and political trends, and then there are uh, technology uh, trends. All of these things are conspiring to pull apart uh, an old order, world order, which we've all grown up in and take for granted, and something else is starting to emerge all around us. And the problem is that these periods in our collective history do not work themselves through in a year or two. They, they take 12 to 15 years as a minimum. So I think we, we're headed into a very, very challenging period in our collective history. 
But to your point, it's only in periods like that, you know, almost existential crises, uh, that uh, the system can be changed. You think about the Second World War and the Bretton Woods conferences where a complete new world order was laid out. Well, people only did that because they had been through this searing experience uh, of a global uh, conflict, and therefore they were prepared to think about sacrificing a degree of sovereignty and, 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 and so on. Um, so I, here we are again. And, and um, now I may be wrong. I mean, maybe, maybe we will see a, a completely V-shaped recovery and we'll all spring out in one bound and uh, go back to business as usual. But I absolutely do not believe that. I think this is one of these extraordinary moments where slowly but then suddenly the conditions in which we uh, live shift. And the problem is that leaders, whether that's in the public sector and government and policy and regulation, whether it's in private sector or citizen sector, there's a, a cohort of leaders who grew up in the old order and find it extremely difficult, if not impossible, uh, to adapt to the new circumstances. So I think the 2020s, we've, we've been calling the 2020s for about a year now, the exp exponential decade, at the end of it, we'll look back at a transformed landscape and we'll see leaders we'd never even heard of at this point uh, directing us, guiding us, uh, and so on. Often for the better, but not always. Look, John, most of what you talk about in the book involves trying to get businesses to, to focus on the long term, to recognise green swan opportunities and, and to shift their business models you know, away from extractive processes and, and adopt this regenerative approach. It's, it's a calculus of risk and opportunity but so many aren't doing it. They're sticking with safety in numbers, with the status quo. Uh, so how do we incentivize businesses to, to get out ahead, to innovate, uh, you know, even if they may be less competitive in the short term? Well, I think the answer to that question is that change often comes from the edge of systems. So um, you don't expect the incumbents uh, in the old order to lead the charge into system change. You know, they're too vested. They're too uh, tied up in the way that the world currently operate so that the, the people who do disrupt tend to be people like, and there aren't many people like, but Elon Musk. And, you know, I've tracked him for 15 years plus now. And, you know, in one sector after another, he has disrupted people's perceptions of what's possible uh, and, and, and what not. So, you know, from, from cars to Tesla to renewable energy with SolarCity to space now with SpaceX. Um, so, I tend to look at the edges of the system for sort of a, a steer on, on where things may go over time. But to the question of what, what you can do with some of those bigger existing uh, incumbent players, well, one thing you can do is to uh, link them up in business-to-business uh, -business platforms like the World Economic Forum, the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, the UN Global Compact. You know, there, there is a proliferation of these entities now. And, and part of what that can do is to ensure the crowdfunding almost, uh, corporate crowdfunding, of uh, research that looks over the horizon. So for example, uh, just in the last few weeks, we've launched two projects that we did with WBCSD. And the second of them looked at COVID-19 and its impact and implications for markets and business over the next uh, decade. So you, that's a way of feeding some of the incumbent uh, businesses with insight and intelligence on on, on what's coming uh, next. But in the end, I think governments uh, have a very much more important role to play in all of this than, you know, people who uh, studied or, or, or follow Milton Friedman, for example, 
uh, would be comfortable uh, admitting. And I you know Friedman was an intelligent man. I mean, very, and, and uh, he didn't like government. It was, it was very clear. I mean, I, I remember one of his quotes along the lines of, if you put the federal government that is in the United States in charge of the Sahara, we'd run out of sand within five years. Well, complete hyperbole, <laughs> obviously, but you know, there are times when, when um, uh, there's too much government or the uh, government is not operating in the right way. But now what you have is actually the reverse of that. You've got, you've got, um, People like Mark Benioff, who's the CEO of Salesforce, saying, you know, capitalism is broken. We've got the Financial Times in my own country uh, doing a banner page last year and then setting up a platform around the same theme, that, that capitalism is in, in dire need of a reset. But at the same time, you've got somebody like um, investor Warren Buffett saying, yeah, all that may be true, uh, but only government can actually uh, change the rules of the game. You can't ask individual uh, companies to... Uh, do that. So I think the role of government is becoming very much more important at exactly the time uh, when global governance um, is under immense pressure. And many of the Bretton Woods institutions now are contested in a way that they, they really haven't been for quite some time. So the question just finally there is, will we continue to see um, uh, this unraveling of global governance and the fragmentation of, of national uh, governments and so on, and this sort of incredible uh, antipathy to the other in different countries where you've almost got undeclared civil wars, not to put sort of too fine a point uh, on it. Will that continue uh, and will that unraveling um, extend uh, years into the future? Or uh, are we uh, going to see some uh, counter trend to that where people start to come together around uh, particular challenges. Now, I, I, I wouldn't even put 50-50 on it. I think, I think the likelihood is we will continue, continue to see unraveling for a, for a while uh, yet. Uh, but in a way, I think we have to, we have to go through that. I, I think the old order has to come apart before a new one can really begin to sort of uh, find its feet. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I definitely agree with that. And, and Mariana Mazzucato as well is a big proponent of that. But then in, in somewhere like Australia in the US, we see that the government is actually swaying more towards the fossil fuel interests and, and not regulating in the way that, I guess, you know, in some ways, a, a vocal minority or majority, it's hard to tell, of the population are pushing action on climate change and, and a focus on renewables. So do you see that as a short-term blip? Because we then have, you know, you talk to people in industry in Australia and they say, look, the only people that are talking about coal-fired power is the government and industry have, have moved beyond it. Yeah, I think there's a very strong uh, pattern at the moment. And you often see it as a, a system starts to wobble and it starts to get to the point where it's going to turn over like, a bit like an iceberg and, and, and a new order is going to establish itself really people start to cling on to the old order it's true in australia it's true in my country it's true in countries around the world that the old political classes that you know the political leadership that we've currently got is unfit for purpose it's in some ways corrupted in the sense not not that people are taking brown paper envelopes of dollar notes or whatever but people have been brought up to think the, the only uh, world order that works is the one that we haven't had. Now, exactly as you say, I mean, in my own country, uh, we're shooting ourselves in the feet or the head or wherever with the Brexit game. In Australia, you've got um, uh, your, your prime minister and others who are basically saying, 
coal is the future. Well, coal absolutely is not the future. And in fact, you, you don't have to be a champion of the, the Great Barrier Reef or whatever, just to think this is utterly insane. Um, and of course, there will be a market for coal. It'll be in India, it'll be in China and other places for a, uh, a while to come. And if you've got coal, it's, it's pretty frustrating to work out how to keep that in the ground. But I actually think um, that there are examples from deep history where we've seen governments rise to that challenge. So for example, in, at the moment, we've got the Black Lives uh, Matter protests spreading around the world, and in, in many ways, uh, deservedly. So there is uh, systemic institutional uh, racism in, in many of our countries. But if you look at how slavery was ended in my own country, which and, and Britain was pivotal in the, you know, the, the, the triangular trade with uh, slaves and sugar and so on. What ended that in the 1830s was a government that was prepared to invest 40% of its revenues for two years in buying out the property rights of the slave owners. It basically said, all right, let's assume that you do have rights to these people, which is a grotesque idea you know, from today's point of view. Well, we'll pay you for those property rights to free those slaves. And in the same way, in the um, post-war, uh, Second World War period in Britain, you had the foundation of the National Health Service. And Nye Bevan, who was the Minister of Health at that time, knew he had a very similar problem, which was that the doctors um, had this sort of goldmine, in effect. Um, uh, through private practice. It, uh, huge numbers of people didn't get proper, proper health care, but those who could pay did, and doctors um, benefited enormously from that. So what did Nye Bevins do? He said, I'm going to stuff uh, the doctors' mouths with gold. I'm going to buy out their rights to operate that old system. Now, it hurts me desperately to say it. I loathe companies like ExxonMobil. I've had stand-up battles with a previous... Um, CEO of Exxon uh, Mobil, uh, Rex Tillerson. Um, but I think we're going to have to buy out those rights to pollute. And it's going to be hideously expensive, but it's going to be a lot cheaper than the alternative. There are these coal companies that seem to be believing their own climate-denying rhetoric. They seem surprised at drops in coal demand, despite clear evidence of renewables getting cheaper by the day. You know, look at Peabody Energy is perpetually on the edge of ruin, and yet they don't pivot. They don't adopt your transformational mindset. Why do you think that is? I think it's because they're coal people. And you know that, that may sound um, arrogant to say, but I mean, there are communities, you think about the Appalachians in the United States, you think about parts of Germany where the brown coal industry has existed for a very long time. The pe people grow up in a world where, no, it, it may be a polluted world, it may be an unsafe world, but, but it's the world that they know. And um, when that world comes under challenge, that's when you get uh, vicious, uh, increasingly pushback from the people who just don't want uh, change because you know, it, 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 it rattles their souls uh, uh, in a way. There's another factor too, though, and, and, and it's almost uh, holding the world hostage, that if you know that at some stage, you might be bought out. Well, then you 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 hang on and continue uh, doing the bad thing because somebody's going to have to then bribe you to do uh, otherwise. And actually, weirdly, towards the end of uh, a market um, where a market's going to uh, end, you actually make quite a lot of money if you operate uh, in it in the right way. So, for example, with the chlorofluorocarbon uh, ban, Montreal uh, Protocol. 
towards the end of that, and then through the black market, a set of uh, increasingly unsavory people made a great deal of money. So I, the, the, I think it's complex, and people have very different uh, motivations. But I think the world is going against them. I think uh, you know I've see, seen some recent um, solar forecasts that uh, see solar power by 2050 uh, coming down to almost the point where it's free. So at a point where it will be ubiquitous, and coal simply will not, cannot. Uh, exist. I mean, it may be there as a chemical feedstock, but it won't be there as an energy source. I think a lot of this, to me, comes from from the corporate structure, from companies. And you talk about it. You know, you you quote the the film, the corporation, and and how uh, a corporation having its own legal entity is, in fact, you know, if it was a person, it would be a psychopath. You go into a lot of depth, and it's something that I I battle with a lot. And sort of from a philosophical perspective, I come back to this you know, the old story of the axe, right? So a company um, where however many times you change the handle or the blade, it's still the same axe. So a company may go through many changes over decades, workers and management come and go, the name remains. You know, I wonder what is this entity? What makes it tick? What's it motivated by? And can we change those incentives? I think we certainly can uh, change uh, incentives. And I think if you make businesses uh, severally and collectively liable, uh, for some of the damage that is done, uh, as happened in the United States with the Superfund legislation. That was incredibly unfair. What it meant that was that the companies that were relatively long-lived ended up picking up the tabs for the asbestos-related or landfill-related or whatever it was, pollution problems that other companies have created. But if you're really going to shake up uh, the business community and and, and signal that the old way of doing things is no longer uh, appropriate. Uh, you both have to uh, put pretty swinging uh, financial penalties in place. And secondly, you have to be prepared to send people to jail. Now, most CEOs and most business leaders don't really like being sent uh, to prison. They don't even like the idea that they might be. Uh, but if this is a crime, and increasingly, I think this will be seen to be a crime, uh, uh, you know, the destabilization of the global climate, for example, against future generations, then courts will start to cover that. Now, that may not happen in the next year or two, but the next couple of decades, I think it's absolutely guaranteed uh, to happen. And once the lawyers get their teeth into this, it'll, it'll develop uh, runaway uh, momentum and not always um, to the best uh, effect. But this is a systemic crisis that we are facing, incremental solutions like publishing another corporate report or engaging stakeholders better or whatever it is. Now, those are nice to haves, but they're not really going to move the needle of change in, in the way that it now needs um, to move. And I think most people are waiting for somebody else to act. Most governments are waiting for some other government to show that this is not only urgently necessary, but actually doable in some ways. So we've got we've got to encourage uh, all, all the key actors to uh, you know have the courage of their convictions, where those convictions are headed in the right direction, uh, and support them as they make mistakes inevitably, uh, because we don't know how to do this yet, um, and we've got to sort of experiment and try stuff out, and that means we will have to fail along the way, and and you know people don't like failure, but failure is good if it's in service of of, of a, a experimentation which is driving us towards a. A, a, a more future fit economy. 
I think mindset is such an important part of all of that. And and just to change gear a little bit, I'd love to understand a little bit about your background. And a question that popped into me was, what were you like when you finished school? Before you headed to university, you know, were you, were you an activist? Were you sort of rattling the cages to, to make change? Or were you more business focused? What was your mindset back then? Well, it's hard to remember. And I think very often we, we construct a set of memories or we shape our memories to sort of serve uh, what we have become or, or think with, that we're becoming. But if I think back to when I left school, m- my father was a Battle of Britain fighter pilot. Uh, the um, idea of university was not uh, particularly in my family. It's, uh, you know, I hadn't been pushed in that direction um, at all. I left school when I was 16. Um, I spent a year just doing all sorts of weird things. And then um, I went to university for the first time. That was to study economics. Uh, I gave up economics after one year in 1968 because, yes, I was involved in protests, particularly against the Vietnam War. Uh, And economics, as it was then configured, seemed to have very little to do with what was going on in the wider world. I mean, I've often said that the, the, the two economists who lived on in my memory from that period of time, but who were loathed by my professors, uh, one was Nikolai Kondratiev and the other was Joseph Schumpeter. And they both said the same thing, as you will know, they, that there are long wave patterns, cycles, waves in our economies. These things don't go in a straight line. And there are periods of what Schumpeter called uh, creative destruction. Well, I think we're in one of those moments now. So I, I, I did that. And then I took a couple of years out uh, and, and, and traveled and did various different things. And then I went back and did a postgraduate degree in city planning. Um, and I came out of that not wanting to become a city planner because at that stage, I like the sort of strategic, you know, designing cities and so on. Uh, but I didn't like the sort of development control where you're just being a sort of environmental policeman. Um, so I went out and started to do environmental impact assessments for people like the United Nations Development Programme in its first year um, in places like Egypt. And because of something really quite desperate that happened there i ended up writing for new scientist and just you know initially looking at the role of government in dealing with our environmental challenges and then increasing in the mid 70s started to focus on business and that led me to set up a company in 1978 with a couple other people environmental data services to explore what business was doing uh, in this space and how it was thinking and so on and that led uh, very quickly to working with um, uh, business as an advisor. And then I set up three companies after that. The, the third one called Sustainability, that was 1987. And at a time when nobody used that word, I mean, it really wasn't in, in use at all, sustainability. Um, I'm telling you a story there, and the narrative structure may suggest that I sort of knew what I was doing, but I often felt I was stumbling backwards. I, there was stuff I didn't want to do. My father wanted me to be a fighter pilot or a merchant banker or something, uh, you know, grown up. Um, I didn't want to do that. And I, I've been incredibly privileged because I, I've sort of grown up alongside the global environmental movement of which I've been a part. And then the sustainability movement and industry of which I've been quite a considerable part over the time, but, you know, from very slow, very small uh, uh, starting points. My journey is, is a tiny bit similar in that I, I too studied economics early on, but I did finish my degree. But um, I never felt I never felt really satisfied by it. I felt that it wasn't valuing environmental resources effectively. We were never really getting anywhere closer to equilibrium. And so I think my whole career has been founded on appreciating that I understand the theory, but then 
pulling it apart. And I think that's a lot of what I do on this podcast and what I was hoping to talk to you about. But what was interesting is that I always talk about how I'm pursuing efficiency. And I think I appreciated that from just the way I see the world and wanting you know things to work well and through business operating efficiently. But really, really appreciated the section in your book that talked about Roger Martin's idea of efficiency holding us back and that resilience is really the factor we should be looking for. And that that's more relevant now than ever. Uh, so interesting that, you know, a few years ago, we might have been going for efficiency at all costs with globalization saying we should have other countries you know manufacturing for their own comparative advantage but then suddenly we're in a pandemic and everything's manufactured in china and we don't have access to protective equipment or pharmaceuticals so we're in this moment which and i agree that i think this is the kind of shift that that really will change things that it's a moment of crisis where things have to change and that, that discussions about globalization will shift and suddenly the financial cost of manufacturing in somewhere like Australia will be thought of differently. It will be factored differently that, hang on, you know, we need this in our country. So how do you see that change happening? I wouldn't argue for a moment that it's either efficiency or resilience. I, it, the, Norwood Roger Martin, for example, I, I think that um, our sense has been, you, you've already touched on it, that uh, much of the just-in-time sort of total quality management uh, approach has has pushed us towards um, much greater efficiencies, and and that's not uh, a bad thing. I mean that that's part of what globalization has been built around. But as as, as you suggest, you know you have a, a pandemic, you have floods in Thailand, and suddenly just in time, uh, supply chains look pretty vulnerable. Um, so we've got to rebalance. And I think two years ago, exactly twenty eighteen June, I. I um, did this rather spurious thing of uh, announcing a product recall of the triple bottom line, which I'd coined uh, 25 years uh, previously. I did that through the Harvard Business Review. They said it was the first time in their knowledge that a management concept had ever been uh, recalled. But I did it largely as a provocation. You can't recall uh, a concept like that when it's embedded in, for example, everything the Global Reporting Initiative uh, does uh, everything that the B Corporation movement does, and, and and so on and so forth. But I was basically trying to signal an agitation, and the agitation was around if we continue to do all of that reporting and stakeholder engagement and supply chain management stuff, did we really think that the original um, the vision behind the triple bottom line, which is that that was moving towards uh, systemic solutions that performed in all three dimensions, not where you just simply had a set of trade-offs and one of the three dimensions was inevitably sacrificed. That might be social, uh, it might be environmental. Did we really think that this was going to drive us towards a better world fit for a population of uh, 10 billion people or whatever it turns out to uh, be? And my conclusion was uh, it wouldn't, uh, it, it, it couldn't. Um, and the overwhelming reaction was positive. Uh, to that uh, initiative, and then then the question was, and then what? So you know, you 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 say that the triple bottom line, economic, uh, social, environmental value uh, added or uh, created or destroyed, uh, isn't quite working well. So what would you put in its place? And the answer after uh, about eighteen months was, the, the concept's fine if you think about it in a, a, a set of frames. So the first one is responsibility. 
and and most of what we've done in 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 this space for 40 to 50 years now has been framed as corporate responsibility and so how do we get businesses to be a little bit kinder a little bit nicer a little bit better to get get uh, afford access to more people who can't currently afford their products or services you know what 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 they increasingly feel they need or uh, want and there's nothing wrong with that uh, it's a good foundational set of activities uh, it's continues to expand so after the pandemic where we've had wealth divides uh, illuminated in an incredible degree by the uh, pandemic health divides tax evasion these sorts of things there's no question that the responsibility agenda for business will expand and expand i think quite considerably but now the word that is on everyone's lips is resilience um and i was once at the world economic forum in geneva about 15 years ago and out in the lawn overlooking the lake and somebody was saying i think it was from one of the big consultancies you know resilience is the new thing resilience is going to replace sustainability and i always felt well that was slightly misplaced uh, in the sense that sustainability is an emergent property of systems that are healthy and those systems have to be resilient in order to be healthy so you know it, th th these things are linked but they're not the same and so the book is very much about how do you get towards a point where your economies your societies and your communities and critically the um biosphere are all more resilient and the only way to do that if you're living in a period where your economies your societies and your environment are actually under real pressure and in some ways you know, structurally compromised the only way is to invest in regeneration economic regeneration urban regeneration and social regeneration and environmental regeneration and so on and so on and so on um so the the story of the book is that that um we've got to move uh, into a period of regenerative capitalism now that's going to um require a series of interlock revolutions in how we do economics how we you know value resources to go back to something you said earlier on john crucially it's about mindsets and you've touched on that uh, as well i mean, we can come back to that but i mean to me the way we think and how we think is absolutely at the root of all of this yeah and i think a really important part of that that then gets back to the the nuts and bolts of, of financial markets is that we we currently rank you know companies on their returns and their share price but not on other impacts not on these non-financial factors and you talked about you know having a wicked ranking where we as part of their share price and it can go up and down based on their efforts to, to solve wicked problems but surely this then rubs up against you know the challenge that they find in, in impact investing um, is how, how you measure it and who makes the decision of, of what's wicked which is the same problem that we have with you know what's ethical it's different for everybody have you have you gone deeper on, on how to do those measurements well, it's interesting because the, the book, Green Swans, actually started off in a rather different direction. I was originally going about three years ago to write a book on artificial intelligence. And I went to see AI companies, machine learning companies like DeepMind, that later bought by Google, HP, and so on. And fascinating start. I mean, fascinating um, work on, on, on novel technologies and so on. But the reason I was doing that was, was actually linked back to mindsets. I was beginning to wonder whether the sheer complexity of the wicked and super wicked problems that we were creating for ourselves, and the book covers things like plastics in the ocean, antibiotic resistance, uh, the, the sort of almost a, a different pandemic of obesity and chronic disease and diabetes, um, space debris, the climate emergency, all of these problems and challenges have very similar characteristics, which is that they are infernally 
complex uh, and therefore very difficult to uh, solve unless you want to be a bit like Alexander and the Gordian knot and just slice through it. But that's very, very difficult to do. And some of them are so complicated, they almost push, seem to, seem to push back against uh, resolution. So I do think that we need a very different way of coming uh, at all of this, but I don't think it always has to be complex. I think it, it, it has to be sufficiently complex to deal with the uh, problem. But the simpler we can make this and, and, and the simpler to understand, not just for CEOs of major businesses or for um, key investors or for heads of government, but for ordinary people, they, they have to understand why it is that we've managed to dig ourselves into this uh, global hole and what it's going to take to sort of not just to stop digging deeper, but to uh, begin to climb out uh, and, and move in better uh, directions. I, I, I continue to think that's eminently possible. Uh, one of the things I've been saying recently, and I can't remember where the source of the, uh, the logic was, but basically there are times when what seems to be uh, completely impossible from today's perspective uh, becomes possible and even inevitable uh, once a different perspective snaps into place. Now, you can talk about paradigms, you can talk about uh, different frames, you can p pitch that in different ways. Uh, uh, Charles Eisenstein, I think, talks about modern miracles, and a miracle of him is where you go from something that looks absolutely clinically impossible to something, well, of course it would happen, wouldn't it? Um, uh, and I think we're at one of those inflection points where if we step up and if we move in the right direction and if we align around uh, coherent uh, goals, and I think the sustainable development goals, the UN global goals are, are useful, but in terms of um, North Stars, they're, they're a little bit complicated for most uh, people. We've got to put in place incentives that engage uh, at every level of our societies and our economies. And again, that's why I say at some point with the people who are killing our planet, we're going to have to bribe them. Well, we're going to have to do two things. We're going to send bribe the ones who are semi-intelligent and, and put the rest in prison, which may sound a bit draconian, but if you know, when your future is at stake, sometimes you've just got to step up and, and think and act in different ways. Yeah, I mean, talking about the SDGs, you know, I think there's so many measurement platforms uh, and we're constantly talking about the, the challenge of having so many and that we want one to rule them all so that we can all be on, on the same page and that our portfolios can be compared. Does that fact that the SDGs has been so widely adopted, does that sort of push it up the rankings that, okay, the practicalities of it make it that that's the best option to push forward? Do you feel that's a, a big factor? I mean, to go back to your earlier question about measurement, I think... Uh, the SDGs are quite useful in the sense that, uh, as you know, in addition to uh, underneath the 17 goals, there are 169 different targets. So if, if you want to measure your progress, then those targets uh, provide some sort of framework for doing that. And I think that's helpful. I do think that, the, you know, you mentioned the um, impact investment world, and, and it, it's extraordinary how that has grown. And, and now you talk to people who say that they're like the Global Impact Investing Network, Jim, they'll say there's something over $500 billion uh, worth of assets now invested with a, some sort of impact investment uh, involvement. And that, you know, that, that's certainly progress. But part of the reason why I defaulted to thinking about artificial intelligence is I think some of this stuff is going to prove beyond our capacity as human beings, beyond the capacity of our brains to really start to uh, address in a sensible, timely and effective way. And I know in a way, historically, as a species, we've tended to defer to God. I mean, God is up there and there are 
uh, he or she d- directs us in, in, in certain uh, ways. I'm sort of wondering whether we don't need, this is going to sound a bit outlandish and science fiction-like, but I, I'm beginning to wonder whether we don't need an artificial intelligence uh, version, not exactly of God, but something that is much bigger than us, much longer timescales, can see uh, pitfalls coming before we can, and gently steers us, and sometimes not so gently, uh, in the right uh, direction. That's where the book started. It went off in a completely different um, direction over time. But at the back of my mind, that is, that's a nagging thought. I'm not sure that our species has what it takes to deal with the existential challenges it's in the process of creating. That's a really interesting concept. That's something that's always been in my mind as kind of a, it would be a great sci-fi novel to see, you know, what would happen if you had the omnipotent uh, computer program that we plugged in all of the world's rules and we let that be the courts. Um, and you can imagine the, the vested interests and the, and the lobbyists not being too happy about that. Maybe you can uh, continue that book. I think that's a really interesting thought experiment. <laughs> I mean, science fiction has a number of authors have explored elements of that. I mean, uh, one of the first science fiction uh, series that I read was the uh, Foundation series by Isaac Asimov. And in that, there was a so-called psycho-historian, Harry Seldon, who uh, came up with a theory which which enabled him to project human history 30,000 years out. Well, fine, I, I don't think we're ever going to get to that point. And uh, as a contrarian, I think that every time you try and build something that is directive, uh, a small but growing group of people in the human population will will push against that and eventually perhaps overturn that. That's certainly the history of um, uh, religions. But no, it was a provocation to myself. And I I still often end presentations by asking the question, do we think that the human brain as it's currently configured and the standard issue brain that we all seem to get, um, do we think it's up to the task that we now face? It's very interesting how many people do say no. They, 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 something else is needed. Some, something out of that sort of um, cerebral box is, is needed. Now, it may be wrong. It may be that our brains can evolve under pressure. Uh, but I do think, uh, I continue to think that um, the incentives, they need to be restrictive for quite a while. They've got to stop us polluting with carbon and all the rest of it. Uh, and I don't think people are going to embrace that uh, unless, and, and this is where your point earlier on about the uh, trajectories and, and the, the pricing of um, solar power, wind power, and so on, unless the, the, the old bad way is just completely swept aside by something that um, operates a lot better. And I think, I think we're at the cusp uh, of a fair amount of that actually happening in the real world. Yeah. Well, look, John, you're so well read. I'd really love to sort of understand a little bit more about your research process and, and your workflow. You've been doing this for a long time. How do you manage your consulting work? You're running companies, you're writing books, you're making time for podcasts. How do you manage it all? I'm not sure I do. I mean, I, I, my, my wife of 52 years would probably say that, you know, I did, part of it is I just don't have much of a personal life. Um, but one of the ways looking back I've managed to do it is by setting up organizations for to date. All of them still exist uh, since 1978. And um, they've all been hybrid organizations. So nowadays we'd be inclined to call them social businesses. They've all, all, always been limited for-profit companies. They've been businesses. And that's had a spurious benefit for the companies that we advise because they think it's a business-to-business relation rather than a sort of NGO-to-business relationship or whatever. 
Now, I am a writer, but I actually, although I, I was paralytically shy as a child, I, I find I like, I really enjoy, and I'm really missing now the uh, ability to go and, and talk to physical audiences in different parts um, of the world. And, you know, one thing feeds another. You, you, you write about something, you're invited to go out and speak at conferences, you meet people there, that leads to, uh, well, all sorts of relationships, but including uh, sometimes um, uh, advisory relationships. And I, I've always been incredibly lucky because I'm, I'm, I'm not a manager. I can't manage uh, teams. I, I, I'm financially um, pretty compromised in the sense I, I, I look at a balance sheet for any of the organizations I've been involved in running. And I, I, can, I can see when the numbers are black and I can see when the numbers are red, but the rest of it, I, I, I really don't properly understand. So I've been incredibly lucky in having other people who will, over time, run those enterprises as they... Uh, evolve. I don't know. I mean, I don't think there's any simple answer to your question, except that I, I think I was born incredibly nosy. I, I'm, I'm some curious. I just constantly want to learn. And I'm at, at my happiest in conversation uh, with people. In fact, one of the crucial, I, I was in Australia, uh, I don't know, about 25, 30 years ago, and somebody in a very grown up conference of several hundred people in the room asked me, uh, and what's your most important strategic tool uh, than uh, my then company's sustainability? And my answer, just off the top of my head, was our sofas, our couches, because that's that's where people sit, that's where they relax, that where that's where conversations happen, and that's where some of our best thinking um, happens. And that remains true today. Yeah, that's really endearing that you're you know most comfortable in conversation. I think it's really powerful, and that's something that I try to try to learn. And that's the the greatest value I get from this podcast is the ability to to have you know conversations and, and listen intently. But uh, you know you are a prolific speaker, and and normally people in that way are sort of extroverted, and they then find it very challenging to sit down and and write the draft of a novel. How do you find that balance? Can you do the focus kind of work writing? I'm probably happiest when I am writing something. You know, the, the, the Green Swans is my twentieth book, and and uh, if somebody had told me that when I was a child that even I would write one book, I would have been incredulous. Um, certainly, no one in my family had done anything uh, like that. Um, but now I've, I find it's 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 the way I process. It's a privilege to be able to dedicate the time, although get back to the beginning of this answer, I, you know, a lot of that has been, most of my books have been written in the evenings and weekends. In fact, our oldest daughter, who's now something like 42, um, Gaia, she, what, she said something to me about 20 years ago, which always stuck in my mind, which was her favorite sound when she was a child, was slipping off to sleep and hearing elsewhere, and actually a small London house, um, hearing the sound of my then typewriter going, Away, uh, doing the latest uh, book, and she said that was a great comfort to her. And I, I, to me, it's it's that's the core of who I am in a way. Conversations lead to thinking, lead to a need to express it through uh, books. And I just, it, it's again, it's been a remarkable privilege that many of the books that I've written, I often feel that I'm like a surfer. It's uncomfortable to mention that in Australia this week, but um, that I, I'm picking up early signs of a wave that's building and then I then I surf it for a while and then then you know come off it and, and hopefully find um, another one so I, I no I, I I'm not I'm not an extrovert I, I when I've done the Myers-Briggs uh, tests I've, I've come out as a, an introvert but somebody who's learned how to be 
uh, extroverted. So I, I think I'm most comfortable thinking and writing, but uh, or, or being in small conversations. But I've learned how to deal with the other bit over time. Do you find you have your day planned out? Do you, you sort of really structured in that way? Do you have you know a routine when you get up, or is it just sort of go go go? Look at the calendar and and move with what what happens that day. No, I don't. I don't think I have it. I mean, it's planned out in the sense that that every day's got a pretty full. In fact, our CEO was beating me up earlier this morning because she was saying, you know, we've got all this client work which you should be paying attention to, and you're doing all of this other uh, stuff, and that's partly lockdown. I don't have anyone uh, sort of sitting on my shoulder and uh, being uh, as directive as perhaps I sometimes um, uh, need. I suppose if I have one practical skill, it's a capacity to multitask. I mean, I, many of the books I would write uh, sitting in the kitchen with the children around uh, doing what they were doing. So I mean, because I, I like the, that form of uh, company. So I, I'm, I'm able to switch very rapidly from one thing to um, uh, another, and, uh, and that's been very helpful. If I thought, though, that every hour of my life was going to be planned for the next few months or whatever, I I, I wanted to jump out of a window. I, I I like flexibility. I like I like surprises. I mean, not always bad surprises, please. But I mean, I I, I like a, a relatively sort of turbulent life. And, and and sometimes when I'm not getting that, I I'm told I I sort of uh, stir it up. And with the organizations I founded, I very often kept them on edge, sometimes for decades, just constantly moving into new uh, areas. And I like that. But I, one of the things I've learned over time is that many people don't. Uh, it, it, it's existentially unsettling to all constantly be having to learn new stuff, meet new people. I, that, that seems to be who I am. Oh, look, that's really interesting. Thank you, John. I appreciate the, the candor. It's great to get those insights. I've got so many questions for you, but I'm going to start winding it up. But one question that sort of kept on you know, coming to me as I read your book was all of this experience you've got um, speaking with different companies, you know, having access to the C-suite and having lots of interesting conversations. And, and I assume being brought in that they trust you and that you could then have difficult um, discussions and, and challenge them with, you know, innovative options and you talked about the reality distortion field you see where black swans are dismissed as unlikely green swans are dismissed as delusional do-gooders i love that word delusional do-gooders i think that's great and being sort of virtue signaling is every situation different when you go into those corporate situations or do you find that uh, it's a bit of a script and that you can really see their assumptions and that you can sort of work with that how do you find those meetings in a way, it's it's evolved over time, and I you know I sometimes look back and, and consider what's happened to us, and I think, good God, that you know that was that worked out quite well. Uh, sometimes it didn't, but but uh, and you know I, I sometimes have had um, in deep history. I even had one moment where three different businesses of a client organisation, ICI, were suing us at the same time because of a book that we put out. Uh, we won all three, and we also had McDonald's suing us at the same time. We won that one too, but. Um, I've always said that we are in the boardroom, in the C-suite, inside a particular company, representing the future. That doesn't mean that we have any unique grip on what the future wants of today's world, uh, but that's our orientation. We're trying to bring the needs of the future back into the present day. And if it comes to the crunch, we would uh, almost certainly side with NGOs, campaigners, activists, and so on. doesn't mean that they're uniformly right, but it does mean that they're largely on the right side of history. Think about Shell 
uh, at the moment, and their CEO is saying he just feels now that they're on the wrong side of history and wants to uh, correct that. So we're in these conversations, particularly I'm in these conversations, as a challenging voice, but as a sort of candid friend, somebody who really likes business, uh, fascinated by how businesses operate, uh, really keen to understand uh, better how that um, works and how it can be improved. But as somebody a long time ago described me as grit in the corporate oyster, that that I'm an irritant uh, for some people. They really would rather I weren't there or we weren't there uh, because it's, it is it is agitating to understand that the future will be substantially uh, different and try and get your brain around um, uh, that. But in general, that's worked very well. And I think part of what is, um, I, I am an agitator in a way, uh, but because I've, I, as I've been told, I, I have a, a fairly calm voice. I have a, um, a voice that is, I mean, Americans often say they find particularly easy to understand. And therefore they think that probably I might know something. So I, a, a number of things have sort of conspired uh, to give us this sort of positioning, which we've tried to use to the best advantage of, of, of that future world. And one of the things I've done throughout is to be very clear about who we're working with in terms of brands or company names or whatever, and also saying what works and what doesn't. And if, if a company that we're working with, as we're working with them, has a, a major problem, then I'll talk about that quite freely um, and uh, without, without doing any uh, great violence to the interests of the company. But I think it's really important that we are as transparent as we uh, can be. That doesn't mean that we don't sign non-disclosure agreements. We uh, do, but we sort of press the, the limits of that. Uh, periodically. And the reason I do that is because although I'm, I'm saying I'm not in there as really an ambassador for the future, as uh, representing the, 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 the deep future, um, we are trying to channel uh, issues, priorities, interests into today's thinking, which wouldn't otherwise perhaps uh, be there or wouldn't get such a strong um, representation. But it is, it, it, it is a form of politics that we're involved in. It's not simply professional and objective. It's, it's trying to drive change. And that, you know, I wish there was a course that you could do. I, I, I sort of had to make it up as we went along. <laughs> well, it is quite a balancing act. I mean, are there, are there companies you, you wouldn't work with, like oil companies, tobacco companies, that sort of thing? We've always said that we would not work with um, the defence industry, that we would not work with the uh, tobacco industry, uh, among others. Um, and... When I was at Sustainability, for example, we had not only Philip Morris, but also Kraft Foods at the time where they were 100% owned by uh, Philip Morris, and, and we turned them down. We did that on a vote uh, I, with the team. I said, look, it would be very lucrative, and, and, and Kraft seemed to be, uh, you know, they're in agriculture and food, uh, and, and, and therefore very interesting. But the team uh, on balance uh, turned that one down. I, we, we turned down a very major... A tobacco company about three years ago. Um, again, uh, partly because, you know, although they were doing interesting work to um, uh, reduce the, uh, the health impact of, of their operations, they were going to fund that work by selling more cigarettes in Asia and uh, Africa and places like that. So, yeah, yeah we, we have a, um, a moral code of our own. I, I won't say that we are always 
pristine or perfect or, or whatever, but we've always also had an addition to our board an advisory council of provocative people. I mean, the, the one that we have now includes uh, somebody who was an astronaut and a cosmonaut uh, back in the 1980s. And uh, just a very, we, we seek different perspectives and people who can then sort of bring those in. And, and you know, when we're under stress or strain and trying to make up our minds about a particular direction, periodically we'll either talk to individual council members or, or, or to the council as a whole. Really interesting, John. I, uh, I could stay chatting with you all day, but I want, I want to let you go. But before I do, I'd love to get a book recommendation. We've talked a lot about green swans, but, but what else should uh, my listeners be reading? Well, I think it, it's funny. I, I, I would actually go for a, a, probably a category than an individual book. Um, and at the moment, we're seeing science fiction coming back. And, and part of it is uh, coming from China now, because as when America was on in the ascendant, you had a huge outpouring about uh, of science fiction. And um, now I think we're uh, seeing it coming from China and other places. So I, I, I would recommend um, good science fiction. And if I think about people who uh, I've read consistently for the last 20 years, William Gibson is often talked about, and, I, and I've read pretty much everything he's uh, written. Yeah, I mean, I, I, either science fiction or, or, or perhaps paradoxically history, because um, I think it was Mark Twain who said, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but by God, it rhymes. Uh, there are these patterns. And if you once get your brain around some of that, you can sometimes see where the future might be headed before others do. Well, that's, it. that's a really interesting way to, I think, breakthrough sort of Chinese culture and understand it. I think, you know, it's such a huge growing economy uh, and having such a big impact, huge population, but yet we really don't have many linkages culturally. Uh, obviously, the language is a barrier. And so so you're reading uh, Chinese language sci-fi books translated, I, I assume? Definitely translated. Um, and, uh, the first one I read was uh, The Three-Body Problem. Um, and, you know, when you when you go into it, you wouldn't think this is going to give you an insight into China. But but over time, as I read more of these books, I suddenly realized how different China is, how it thinks, how it thinks about its own future, and the trouble that that's going to get us into uh, in future. It doesn't mean that it's absolutely guaranteed, but the Chinese, and I worked there at Fairmount over the years, have often said that they studied the rise of Prussia uh, and don't want to go there uh, in the sense of two world wars. Uh, I think that's exactly where we're headed. And it doesn't mean that the next world war will be anything like either of the previous two. It'll be cyber and it'll be uh, robotic and drones and all sorts of other stuff. But that may be where it starts, as with dreadnoughts, but you end up with blood. Uh, and I think we need to understand China far better. And we also need to understand how to cope with uh, a culture that is going through a period of, as it becomes more ascendant, uh, wanting to bully the world. Uh, and I think that's incredibly dangerous. And I've seen a lot of evidence of it when I've been in China. And yet, paradoxically, it's one of the countries I like best. I find it fascinating. Anyway, John, thank you very much for the interest. I, I, I've enjoyed the conversation. Would love to continue it. Really good, John. I appreciate it as well. And yeah, super interesting to stay on top of, of yeah, getting a feel for China and uh, their evolution. And I think that's right. It comes back to mindset once again. And that's a, a great way to crack through it. But look, thank you for that. And, uh, and I'll let you get on with your day. All the best. Thanks very much, John. 